you keep your Bibles open to the book of Jude. We return this morning to our study of this postcard of an epistle in the New Testament, and yes, it is a very potent postcard. Even as we read this morning, you can see there's a number of things discussed within these short verses that really grab our attention. We'll do our best to discern many of these things this morning. It was this past week, we had some friends visiting from out of town, and we took them over to the coast, to Newburyport, Massachusetts. It was there that we visited this historic church. This is the Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport. How many of you have ever been there? Anyone here ever been over to that? Okay, a few of you, okay. That's the oldest structure in the town of Newburyport. It was built in 1756. Uh, Look from the inside of the building, looks like this. You can see that it has the old box pews in it. There's kind of a high ceiling. There is a balcony area there. Some uh, ornate paintings, very interesting architecture in this building. Up there at the front where those curtains, what looks like curtains are sort of half drawn is the pulpit. And really that's the reason we went to this particular building because underneath that pulpit uh, lies something very significant. They take you some, down some stairs, and you can go right underneath that pulpit, and there you'll find this. It is the crypt of a man named George Whitfield. And uh, Whitfield uh, died in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and he asked them upon his death to bury him underneath the pulpit of this church, and those wishes were honored. And Whitfield to this day is there. That's not his actual skull there in the crypt. That's a remake of that. Uh, You can't see any of his body there. Uh, But there is a plaque there that gives um, testimony to Whitfield. That's why we went to this building. If you know anything about the early founding of our country and the time of the first great awakening, God used this man, George Whitfield, in a very powerful way. He would go out into the fields and preach, as it was said sometimes, to as many as 10,000 people in open fields. It was estimated at the time of Whitfield when he came to the colonies that he was a household name, that as much as 80% of the people that lived in the colonies would recognize the name George Whitfield. He was a powerful preacher of the gospel, having come to faith in Christ personally, And so we went to see this particular crypt, and as we were looking at this, I was just thinking about Whitfield and and reminded that Whitfield actually was one of the early founders of what today is known as the Methodist Church. He, along with two other names you might recognize, John and Charles Wesley, we sing many of their hymns still to this day. We didn't sing any this morning, but we frequently do. They established the Methodist Church, which really was an attempt to live holy lives before God, and that was the starting of that kind of denomination. That was 225 years ago, because I was then reminded that just recently there has been quite the controversy in what is now called the United Methodist Church. In fact, there's major controversy in that particular church because the discussion is whether or not they should ordain homosexual clergy 
whether or not that church should recognize and perform same-gender marriages. And many in that denomination are saying, there's nothing at all wrong with that, and we actually should be doing this. This is the church that Whitfield and the Wesleys were instrumental in founding. There are some in that denomination that are pushing back against that and saying that's not right, it's not in accordance with the teaching of Scripture, and therefore we should not be doing this. I came across an article recently in which a lady by the name of Cheryl Tevis writes in the Iowa Capital Dispatch, and she addresses this very issue. And she actually is pushing back against those people that say it's wrong to perform same-gender marriages. And here's what she said. Who are these people who feel that someone else's sexuality is justification for tearing apart their church? What is the biblical basis for all this angst? Apparently, the Old Testament was very harsh about homosexuality, if the translations are accurate. Many other aspects of human behavior also are condemned and sinful, as sinful in the Old Testament. Why is this one type of sin, quote, leading people to disassociate from their church family? Why should it end our good work together? What did Jesus have to say? Is there anything about LGBTQ issues in the Ten Commandments? How about the Beatitudes or the Lord's Prayer? No. I'm no theologian, but I know that the second commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself, is very important. It's a reoccurring theme you'll find throughout the New Testament. Being LGBTQ is not a lifestyle choice. If you believe God made all human beings, then how do you explain God creating LGBTQ human beings? I actually read that quote several weeks ago and intended to bring it to your attention several weeks ago, and it just never made it into my sermon notes, and I think the Lord preserved it for today, fresh off visiting the founder of the United, or not the United, but the Methodist Church, George Whitfield. How do you get from Whitfield, orthodox, ardent, fervent preacher of the gospel, to now a church that questions whether or not even the Bible speaks about sin. How does that happen? It's a slow but deliberate process. And we need to understand as God's people that this has always been something that good Bible-believing churches must be aware of. The book of Jude addresses this very issue. Jude begins by saying, I wanted to write to you about the common salvation that we enjoy, but I am compelled to write to you to contend for the truth. Guard the truth. Don't let it fall. 
And I remind you that Jude's not writing to pastors, to theologians in seminaries. He's writing to people in the church like you in the pew. And he's saying, be careful. You must contend for this faith. Don't let it fall by the wayside. So if we noted that this really is the theme of the book of Jude. You read it in verses 3 and 4 that it is the duty of every genuine believer to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What will keep Heritage Baptist Church true to the teaching of God's word? What will keep us sound? What will keep us from straying like other examples, one that I've just given. It is if you are earnest about contending for the faith, holding it fast. Jude makes that very clear. He says in verse 3, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Why is this Jude, verse 4, for certain people have crept in. There's the process. It's people creeping in and teaching something that is different from what the Bible teaches. And in this context, Jude notes two things in particular in verse 4. What are these certain people doing? Well, we know they were long ago designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people, and they do two things. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They are given over to immorality, and they struggle with Christ's authority or deny Christ's authority. And so Jude says that this is what we must do in Jude's day. This is what we must do in our day. But the next thing Jude does, beginning in verse 5, is he now gives us a series of examples to encourage people by, by this notion that, that this isn't something new in our day. In fact, it's always been the case that the true people of God had, had to contend for the faith. And he gives examples, actually, of, of how God views people who don't. What is the consequence for people that stray from the faith and actually try to turn people from the faith, these certain kind of people that creep in? And so what Jude does is he, in verses 5 through 7, he tells us that contending for the faith has always been necessary among God's people. And he gives us three examples. Look at verse 5. He speaks of the people of Israel coming out of the land of Egypt. Look at verse 6. He speaks of angels who didn't stay within their own position. In verse 7, he speaks of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities and what happened there. And he gives these illustrations to affirm this truth that contending for the faith has always been necessary among God's people. And this is how God views people that even profess to be among his people, and this will be their end. 
So early in the week, I anticipated us getting all the way through verse 10. That's why I had it read for you this morning, but I'm pretty certain we're only going to get through verse 7 today. Because I really think we need to understand these illustrations in their context and know how they applied in Jude's day and how they apply in our day as well. So these are reminders that Jude is going to give us. Look at verse 5. He says, I want to remind you. Okay, I want you to contend for the faith. People have crept in, and I want to remind you something about this. And look at the end of verse 7. He says, these things serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So Jude is reminding us about what the Bible has said about people who stray from the faith, and they're serving as examples of God's attitude toward that. I've given you these examples so you would know that God takes this very seriously. And so this morning, we're going to look at this, reminders that emphasize God's response to false teaching and false teachers. As I said, there are a triad of judgments here. In fact, when you read the book of Jude, Jude has a thing for threes. He gives three examples here. He'll give three examples later. And he, he seems to put things together in groups of three. Um, maybe he's a good Trinitarian. I don't know. My wife is that way, right? When we plant something, she says, no, you always have to have three. You can't just have two. It's got to be three. So Jude has a thing for three, and he gives us three of these Old Testament examples that serve as a warning. Let's note the first of these. Look at verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. A couple of questions about this verse. One, what event is Jude speaking of? It has something to do with Egypt, right? People saved out of the land of Egypt. What would you call that? That's the Exodus. We read of that in the book of Exodus. That's the, the general context. But then he says, afterward, he destroyed those who did not believe. What is that? Well, there are a couple of options. I'll give you my preference. Some commentators say this might be referring to Exodus 32, where the people came to Mount Sinai, and there Moses went up on the mount, and he didn't return, and therefore the people built a false god. Uh, remember, they melted down the jewelry, and Aaron built this calf. I don't think that's the best understanding. I would prefer that this really, I think it really refers to what took place in Numbers 14. And let me tell you why, because the issue here is this, it's that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, but he destroyed those who did not what? Belief is the issue. They somehow were identified with those people coming out of Egypt as a nation, but they failed to fully trust or believe. And if you look with me at the book of Numbers in chapter 14, we see that this is the very issue. This is the story that perhaps some of you young people that are in here with us, and you hear this story in Sunday school, or you sing the song, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. You know how it goes? 10 were bad, and two were good. And this is the context of Numbers 13 and 14, where the people of Israel are primed to go over the Jordan into the promised land, and they send 12 spies. They send those spies into the land, 
And ten of them bring back an evil report and say there are giants in the land and there are walled cities. We'll never be able to conquer this. But there are two that say, absolutely, God will give us this land. It's a land of bounty. Do you remember their names, young people? Who are the two good spies? Caleb and Joshua. All right, I know you young people, your parents say don't ever talk in church. But if the pastor asks you a question, it's okay. All right? Caleb and Joshua. But here the people hear the report of the bad spies, and they're filled with fear. And look at what happens. Look at verse 6 of Numbers 14, uh, verse 5 rather. It says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceeding good land. And if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. And what they're expressing is genuine trust and faith in God. He will do what he has said. But look at verse 11. The congregation didn't want to do that. Verse 10, they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb. In verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not, what? Believe in me. And there's the issue. God says, in spite of all the things that I have done among them, they still don't fully trust me and believe in me. Now go back to Jude. I think this is the event that's being described in Jude 5. And the point of it is this, that God delivered people out of Egypt and made of them a nation. In fact, there was a, a symbol of their covenant with God in that, in that national sense. It was observance of the Sabbath under the Mosaic law. And this was them constituted as a nation. But yet among those people that identified with that nation, there were unbelievers. Those who looked one way, but actually in their heart, they didn't really believe or trust God. And this is Jude's point. It's an analogy. There was a national deliverance, and we could use the terms of Jeremiah, who said these people were circumcised in their flesh and identified as in a covenant with God, but they were never circumcised of heart. They had a social, maybe even an intellectual understanding of who God was, but they never fully embraced him by faith. And Jude's point is this, those kind of people among the people of God were afterward destroyed. They weren't able to inherit the blessing of God. They perished in the wilderness. And what Jude is saying, his main point is this. You can have a believing community of people just like this, and we all look very similar, and we all sing the same hymns, and we all might say the same things, but there very likely is people, even in a gathering like this, who are not true believers who don't genuinely trust and rely upon God. 
Because faith and salvation is not just a one-time sign my name on a card and make a decision, although it might look like that. Faith is always present tense. Am I believing now? Am I persevering in my faith? Even when trials and hardship come, what do they reveal about my faith, my confidence in God? Do they undo that and deconstruct that faith? Or do they demonstrate it's the true thing and instead they refine it and it grows deeper and stronger? You see, you can be identified with the people of God and yet not truly be born again by God. The Apostle John says this in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, there were people that were among us, identified among us, but they went out from us. In other words, they left the faith and abandoned the truth. And he says, it's because they never were of us by their lack of persevering in their faith, they demonstrate they never had it. Judah's not talking about people losing their faith, that somehow they were genuinely born to life, and then somehow they lost that along the way. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 1. Jude calls these people, those who are called, beloved of God the Father, and what? Kept for Jesus Christ. He says, if you have genuine faith, it's actually the fact that God is holding on to you. You're not holding on to him. But he does say there are people among the people of God that may look the part, but they don't have the reality. And this is what explains when, this is what happens when we read of people, very well-known people like Josh Harris, who perhaps you've heard of. And Josh Harris was kind of a celebrity on the evangelical circuit and wrote several books and pastored a megachurch in Maryland and was kind of an up-and-coming star in evangelical Christianity. And it was just a few years ago that Harris wrote that he was turning away from his faith. He says this, the popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Those words are stunning coming from somebody like that. And how do you explain that? Well, Jude explains it very well. There are people that can identify with the people of God and yet not truly be his people because they don't persevere in their faith. Doesn't mean we're saved by works. It just means that a true faith is an enduring faith and you can't burn it out of people. This is one of Jude's examples. He says, so don't be surprised. Certain people among you that are like this, that maybe look the part and even say Bible-like things, but they're not truly God's children. Notice his next example. Look at verse 6. 
and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, what is that referring to? That's what everybody wants to know. And I would remind you, I'm sorry, I forgot to put my points up here. The first point, verse 5, this is God's response to unbelief. His response to unbelief is they don't inherit the promises of God. Verse 6, he talks about these angels. What's he talking about here? What, what's, what event is being described? There are some people who look at this and say, well, this is talking about the original fall of angels. That there was the angelic company that rebelled with Satan in heaven, and they were cast out of heaven. And that is true. However, notice it says in verse 6, not that these angels were cast out, but they didn't what? They didn't retain their own position of authority. It's like they willfully left something, okay? A, A proper position. Well, what is this referring to? Again, a lot of ink has been spilt on this, and I guarantee you could probably go out after today because this is going to pique your interest and find something online and read it and say, oh, well, that's entirely opposite of what Pastor Matt said. And I want you to know I'm, to- I'm totally fine with that, all right? I know all the different ideas. Uh, I'm just going to give you the right one today, okay? Uh, so, so what is this? Well, notice this. Whatever it is, all right, look at verse 7. What are the first two words of verse 7? Say them out loud. What are they? Okay, what does that tell you? If you're going to use that kind of phrase, you're going to say something, and then you're going to say just as and say something else, what are you doing? You're comparing two things, and when you say just as, you're comparing the likeness of those two things, right? In fact, he uses that terminology. Look at verse 7. Just as, and he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which, what's the next word? Likewise. There it is again, a word of comparison. And so you would really read verses 6 and 7 this way. It's the angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority, just like Sodom and Gomorrah in those cities, which likewise did the same. So whatever he's talking about in verse 6 is similar to what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know what happened there, right? In fact, if you look at verse 7, it talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in what? Sexual immorality and pursued what? Our version says unnatural desire. Maybe you have a, a, a... Note in your margin, a literal rendering of that is pursued other flesh. And really it's a reference to homosexuality. Not not the natural order of things as God had designed them, but other flesh. And we know just by the term Sodom that this was the nature of the sin of those cities. So verse 6 is comparing and saying that the angels did this and it was just like Sodom did when they likewise went after other flesh. So what's being described here? When, When did this happen? 
Well, I think that it is what is being described for us in Genesis chapter 6. And so I want you to turn there in your Bibles. Look at Genesis chapter 6. This is before the time of the flood. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 32, says this, after Noah, who's that? We know him because of the ark, right? So this is before the time of the flood. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you can read right into verse 6 because the, the language goes right into chapter 6, rather. It says, he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, many people read Genesis chapter 6 this way. They interpret the sons of God in verse 2 as the godly line of Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That that is the godly line and somehow that godly line from Seth ultimately started to intermarry with the Cain, Cain's line and started to, to pollute that, as it were, and that God was upset by that, and that was one of the reasons he brought judgment. However, I believe the sons of God in verse 2 is actually referring to angels because that is a description of angels elsewhere in your Bible. Book of Job talks about the sons of God singing when God created the world and is talking about angelic company. And if you just read Genesis 6, that's why I read chapter 5, verse 32. It just talked about Noah, who was 500 years, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and 6.1. Now when man, that man there includes Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth he just talked about. Now when these men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man the same man. I'm trying to be clear, but just to be technical, man in verse 1 and man in verse 2 includes the men of 532, that godly line. Does that make sense? So the sons of God must be something different. And we don't have all the details here, but what we're told is that these sons of God, angelic beings, took as their wives any they chose, and the Lord was displeased with that in verse 3 and decided that he would bring a flood. We're told about the offspring of those unions in verse 4 with the Nephilim and mighty men in the earth, men of renown. Now, I tell you that, and you say, that sounds really weird, right? Angels having intimate relationships with women and bearing offspring, that sounds really weird. And all I want to tell you is that in Jude's audience, they almost would have expected that. Because when Jude writes to these people, they have access to all kinds of literature that we still do today. And they would have had access to a book called First Enoch. It's not in the Bible. It's not inspired. 
In fact, I read part of it this week, this part of it. And in that book, it describes Genesis chapter 6, and it says, here's what happened in Genesis chapter 6. It doesn't say Genesis chapter 6, but it talks about the story of the angels defying God's authority and deciding that they are going to cohabit with human beings. And Jude was very familiar with this, and his audience was very familiar with this. Do you know how I know that? Look back at Jude. And look at verse 14. Jude says, It was also about these, and the these there is referring to the certain people that have crept in unaware. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, and then he gives this quotation that Enoch had given. Do you know where he found that? The book of 1 Enoch. The same place you read about those angels. And what happened in Genesis chapter 6. In fact, in the first century when Jude is written, the only understanding of what took place in Genesis chapter 6 is the fallen angels cohabiting with human beings. A later interpretation that says the Son of God in Genesis 6 actually were the godly line of Noah doesn't show up until the third century in Christianity. So Jude's audience would be thinking, we know about those angels. And we know what happened to them. Now, just to bring about some objections, some of you are saying, well, didn't, didn't Jesus say something about angels aren't like us and they don't? There's no marriage or, or giving of marriage. He does. He says that in the, the Gospel of Matthew. But there, Jesus is referring to the righteous angels. Okay? And these are fallen angels, clearly. And I also would remind you that when two angels entered the city of Sodom, what was the understanding of those fallen people in Sodom and their ability to actually have intimate relations with those men? That's what they wanted. And apparently thought that was totally legit. Again, I, I can't explain all of this, but I do think that that, in fact, that is the oldest interpretation. And, and I, every time I come back to this passage, whether it's Genesis 6 or 2 Peter 2 where it's spoken of or Jude chapter 1, I always try to convince myself that's too weird. It can't possibly be the case. And I always come away thinking that has to be the case. And here's why. What's Jude's point? Look at Jude 6. These angels didn't stay in their own position of authority. They didn't stay in that angelic spiritual realm, but they left their proper dwelling. They left that proper place. In other words, they said, God, we don't like your authority. We don't like the way you've made us. We don't like your plan, your creative design. We're going to do something else. We're going to take this in our own hands and do whatever we want. And remember, this is Jude's point. There are people among you who defy Christ's authority. It's plain what he has said you must and must not do, and they defy it like he didn't even say it. 
or didn't even mean it. That's why he brings up the illustration. There are those among the people of God who leave their proper place under the authority of Christ and they show it by their refusal to obey him. They refuse to hear what he says about their life and how to live their life in a way that honors God and they snub their nose at him or they try to rationalize it away or they say, well, he can't possibly be saying that or, or there must be some other understanding because I just feel it's this way. And Jude says, those kinds of people are deluded just like those angels. And they're demonstrating a defiance of God and a defiance of his rightful authority over them. And notice God's response to that. Look at the end of verse 6. Here's how this works. The beginning of verse 6, the angels didn't stay. They didn't keep to that rightful place. And therefore, the end of verse 6 God will keep them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Because they stepped out of authority, God demonstrated, I'll show you my authority. I'm going to chain you in darkness until the end times. Peter talks about this. You don't need to turn there, but 2 Peter chapter 2, it says the angels who send God confined them to hell, and the word hell there is the word Tartarus. It's not the typical word Gehenna for hell. It's not the term for the lake of fire. It's, it's a unique term in the Bible. It's Tartarus, and it refers to a deep pit. And it says that God kept, keeps them there because they stepped out of their proper place. And what was the evidence of this? What was the evidence of their casting off God's authority? Well, look at verse 7. Point of verse 6 is this is God's response to rebellion, the rebellion of these angelic beings. In verse 7, we see God's response to immorality. Rebellion against God manifests itself in this kind of immorality. Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, there were five cities of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. All of those cities, except Zoar, were destroyed. And it says, they likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued other flesh, unnatural desire, and their ending serves as an example because they undergo a punishment of eternal fire. Here's what Jude is saying. He's dealing with people, according to verse 4, who perverted God's grace into sensuality. They say God is so gracious and morality is not bad. They're probably living in maybe open immorality. And Jude is saying what they're actually doing is defying God's authority. And they're demonstrating by that inordinate immorality that they have defied God. Now, is there any greater defiance of a creator than to say, I don't like the way you made me. I choose to be something else. In fact, I feel I am something else. That is a total defiance of the authority of a creator. 
and it manifests itself not only in immorality that is against his good will, but in a perverse immorality. And Jude says God's understanding of this, God's attitude toward this is clear the end of verse 7. The way God dealt with these cities and those angels serve as an example where they're undergoing punishment of eternal fire. Why does he speak of that? Well, in Jude's day, it is likely that the smoke of Sodom perhaps could still be seen. How do you know that? Well, there's a guy named Josephus, and he's a historian. And he wrote in the first century at the time of Christ, and he wrote about what was taking place in Palestine at that time. Josephus wrote this about those cities of the plain. He said, in fact, vestiges of the divine fire and faint traces of five cities are still visible. This is in his day, first century, when Jude is writing. He says, still too, may one see ashes reproduced in the fruits, which from their outward appearance we thought edible, but on being plucked with the hand, they dissolve into smoke and ashes. He says, so far are the legends about the land of Sodom borne out by our ocular evidence. What does he mean by that? Josephus says, I've seen it with my eyes. You can go to Sodom and there's a living, breathing, smoldering testimony of God's attitude toward that kind of immorality. Now, that's not true today. However, okay, we're stepping out of the Bible. This is personal opinion. They're still looking for Sodom. I tend to think it's actually at the lowest place on earth. It's under the Dead Sea somewhere because God just pounded it into the ground. You go there today in the Dead Sea, right? It's below sea level. It's, I think those cities are probably at the southern end of that Dead Sea. And so it's still a testimony to how God feels about that. And so what is the point? Again, We can get in the details of all these things about the angels and what's going on here. The point is very clear. God takes insubordination very seriously. When people cast off his authority and they put themselves as God, God takes that very seriously. And what is the manifestation of that? a manifestation of that oftentimes shows itself in blatant immorality, even unnatural immorality. And Jude gives these historical reminders to emphasize the fact that you must contend for the faith. If you have people propagating this and saying it's fine, it's no big deal, let's show a little grace. Beware. We're talking about people that are denying the authority of Christ over their life. Now, I want to end with this. Why are these fearful examples necessary? Why does Jude list these examples? Is he just kind of red in face and he's... You know, just kind of upset, so he's just going to go off and blast these people, and he thinks of the worst possible things he can imagine in his mind, and he pulls out of the Old Testament all these examples. 
Well, we know he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. So it's not just him going off on somebody. I think, however, the reason that Jude has to go into detail about how God has has responded in the past is because we don't always see God's immediate judgment on sin, do we? I mean, sometimes we would like to, right? You, you hear about what's going on and people defying God and people sinning against God, and you say, oh, God, that you would just open the heavens and send down lightning and show them who you are. But the fact is, God doesn't do that. In fact, when, when you read in your Bible, and, and if you're in a habit of reading through the Bible, you come across stories that just kind of shock you, like, like the story of, of Uzzah, who when they're carrying the ark to its resting place in Jerusalem, the, the oxen stumble and the cart tips, and Uzzah puts out his hand to stabilize the ark, and what happens? Bam, he's dead. When you read that, you're like, that's a shock. Or when you read in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and you have Ananias and, and Sapphira, right? And they come, and they present their offering to God, and they, they fudge on the numbers and say, this is everything we have to look magnanimous. And what happens to them? Bam, immediate, swift judgment. And it shocks us. Why do those things shock us? Because God so rarely gives us justice immediately. But he's full of mercy and compassion and long-suffering and patience. And every day people get up in this world and say, there's no God, I'm God. And yet those people get the same sunshine and they get the same rain and they eat of all of God's animals, and they eat the fruit that he puts on this planet because God is patient and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Jude has to bring up these examples because he says, don't be fooled. These people are among you. They're even propagating a truth that looks good, maybe even draws a crowd. And now you have a huge gathering of people that are all talking about God's grace and kindness and goodness, and these things aren't really important. And you say, there must be something great going on there. Look at all the people. And Jude says, don't be fooled. God is serious about these matters and rejecting his authority and living this way. And someday, God will deal with it. And so he says, wake up. Contend for this. Don't be fooled. Just because God doesn't exact judgment today doesn't mean he's blind to it or unconcerned about it. He's very concerned about it. And so be faithful. And deal with sin in your own life. And don't let it creep in among the church. And contend for what's true. That we might preserve our testimony for a lost world. So you can see, beloved... Contending for the faith, 
has always been necessary among God's people. And it always will be. So let's take a good look at our own lives. What do I allow in my life? In what ways do I despise Christ's authority? What ways have I justified some act that the Bible clearly forbids? What way have I tried to reinterpret things to my own accommodating ways? If we do that, we will allow things in that will get us off target. Therefore, among all of us, we must be contending for the faith. Among